Now, for this evening's program, as some of you may recall, I wrote an op-ed piece for the Times-Dispatch last year titled, Should Revisionism Be a Dirty Word? And in it, I noted that unfortunately the term revisionism has in recent years been used to describe distorted or bad history. And I, I think that is unfortunate because good history is a constantly changing interpretation of the known facts. As long as those facts are not distorted to fit a particular point of view. And I would argue that the best historians, the best chroniclers and, and interpreters of the past are revisionist. They are always looking at familiar subjects from different perspectives to come up with new ways of looking at the past. And in that respect, historians are not unlike detectives who change their analysis of a case based on new evidence that comes, uh, that comes to them. And the end result of the work of scholars who are revisionists gives us different insights and fresh perspectives from the, those presented by previous scholars. And as a result, almost any subject is more interesting and meaningful when it is seen in a new light. And I think our speaker this evening is a perfect example of revisionism at its best. Indeed, Charles Mann's prolific writing, which combines science, technology, anthropology, and history, has helped the reader to look at the past differently. For example, his award-winning book, a magnificent book, 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, forcefully challenges our images of early America, images that have been accepted as gospel for generations. And I agree with many of my colleagues in the history profession that 1491 is one of the most important books published in the last quarter century. It is a, a remarkable book. Well, in addition to 1491, Charles Mann is the author or co-author of four other books and scores of other publications. He's the winner of numerous literary and scientific awards. He's been described as one of the most insightful and innovative interpreters interpreters of the past of our time. He lives with his family in Connecticut, but I'm pleased to say that he has spent time in the reading room of our library, many hours there, doing research on his next book, which will be a companion to 1491. Uh, and this evening's lecture will give us a sneak preview of that book. So please join me in welcoming Mr. Charles Mann, who will speak on the topic tobacco, mosquito, slave, colonial Virginia, and the dawn of globalization. Mr. Mann. Thank you. Can you see this picture? I, I have the light sort of shining in my eyes, so I can't see it, but it's okay for you? Right. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, it's really an honor. This is an absolutely fabulous institution, and um, since you, don't, you live around here, you don't realize perhaps how, how unique it is. It's really like nothing else, and uh, Charlie's done just a wonderful job in making it a place that's both very accessible and useful for researchers like myself, and also opening it up to the public. And I, I really can't think of any place like it. It's uh, wonderful that you're here and wonderful that you support it, and I encourage you very much for continuing to do so. What this is um, here, in addition to being a picture that you can look at while I try to figure out if this is you know, working, is uh, something that uh, I saw about six months ago when I was in um, China working on this book that I'm working and it's a, a child eating a raw sweet potato. That's the way they eat them in, in, in China. 
And uh, what his mother was doing was going out in the fields to make sweet potato pie for me. Um, and I was struck because the only other place in the world that I've ever had sweet potato pie is, of course, in the American Southeast. And then just a few miles away, um, let's see, was this uh, play fellow who was um, gathering in his corn. And um, over there, they have something that's very much like um, grits. It's, of course, got Chinese spices in it, so it's in a way it's completely unlike it. But I had to wonder why, how did this you know, southern food get to China? And the answer has a lot to do with the, way, with the reasons that Virginia is founded and why Chinese and Americans are the only people in the world, so far as I know, that eat sweet potato pie. <laughs> and I thought I would begin with another Chinese product here. This is um, this awful stuff that you can get in the market there. It's, uh, it's uh, sort of sugarcane juice. Um, and, uh, and what I'm going to do in this, this talk is I'm going to be talking a lot about Virginia but sort of circling around it, so we won't actually get to Virginia until about halfway through. I beg your indulgence for this, but we will get to Virginia, even if I seem to be going way, way, way out of the way. And the thing about sugar is, first, if you, um, that everybody really, really likes it, and that everywhere sugar is grown, it's really hard to grow. These things are like little trees that you have to cut, and it's immensely difficult labor. And then the other thing that you have to do when you make sugar is you have to you know, smash these things to get the juice and then boil down the juice um, in these kind of large factories. And this has been done since sugar was made. Large gangs of people get together, work on this terribly difficult um, work, and then have to um, make these enormous fires boiling this, boiling this away. Sugar was invented, um, or rather not invented, was discovered um, you know, in, in New Guinea um, and then brought over to the Mediterranean by the Muslims. And uh, they created what are essentially sugar plantations all over, um, all over the Mediterranean in about 1000 AD. And uh, Europeans very much wanted these. They liked sugar, um, just, like, uh, just like people today. They uh, wanted to get as much sugary um, glop as they could get their hands on. And, uh, they, and these, these sugar plantations were kind of, a, again, this familiar pattern. They had to get lots and lots of people to work very hard. Most people don't like um, those conditions, so they ended up creating a kind of a slave system. And by about 1000 AD, um, you had these kind of slave plantations all over the Mediterranean. Then what happens is that uh, various groups of Christians come in to the, um, to the Mediterranean. And so you had crusaders coming over here and taking over these places. You had Venice here. You had the Normans here. And uh, then you had these, these Spaniards who were conquering, you know, reconquering Spain. And what they did when they got to these sugar plantations is they found these, very, these systems that worked very well, and they simply took them over. And, they, and so you had, again, the slave societies all over, um, all over the, the, the Mediterranean, now operated by Europeans on the same pattern that had been established by, the, um, by, by, the, by their um, Muslim inventors. Then... The Europeans got inventive, and they started taking over these islands all over here, Sao Tome, Principe, all these, and they put sugar plantations on them, and they created new um, um, slave societies there as well. From this perspective, when you get to, this is the uh, Columbus uh, Memorial in Santo Domingo, um, this uh, enormous thing that was inaugurated in 1992. It's the, sort of the hemisphere's largest monument to Columbus. And from this perspective, what Columbus did was bring this kind of system of production to um, the Americas. He 
he came over and, and sugar and uh, tobacco and other large types of plantations came into um, the Caribbean. And then if you take history now, you'll learn um, you know, somewhere, there, um, somewhere in your first year of world history that this, the Spaniards then created what has been known as the triangular trade in which sugar, tobacco, all these products from here go to Europe. Europeans come down here, grab slaves for labor, and they bring it around and it goes around like this. Now, what has recently been um, sort of highlighted is that the Spaniards did more than this. In the, in the 16th century, they got a lot of gold by looting various um, Indian groups, the Aztecs and the, and the Incas most prominently, but they also found huge um, silver mines, also gold mines, but the silver were largest, and they're, they're just absolutely huge, the world's largest supplies of, of silver. And the Spaniards were overjoyed, of course, because their money consisted of silver. And what was in the ground, essentially, were huge piles of money. And to show you how huge they are, uh, recently I went to Potosi, which is in um, Bolivia, and they're still hauling um, silver out of it 400 years later. It's just an absolutely enormous silver deposits. Now, to give you some idea of how much there is, there's a chart here. Um, this is the silver production in Europe, this little line here. This is what they got out of the New World, the, the, the top line. Now, there's a very odd thing about this chart, which is here. This is the silver they mined, and this is the silver that went into Europe. So where did the silver go? And this brings us to a guy who is pro should probably um, be as famous as Columbus, but is almost unknown. His name is Miguel Lopez de Legazpi. He's particularly appropriate, I think, in a state capital because he was a civil servant for all of his life, um, and then he went on and changed the world. Um, when he was about uh, 45, he was asked to go to Mexico, and he did a very good job in the colonial government in, in New Spain. He did such a good job that they asked him, even though he had no nautical experience um, other than being a passenger, they asked him to go to, um, to the new outpost of the Philippines, where the Spaniards where the Spaniards had tried several times to, uh, to set up a colony, and he did extremely well. And one of the things that he did was he contacted the Chinese. Now, as you recall, Columbus had been trying to reach China, had been trying to reach the Indies, um, failed because the Americas were in the way. Legaspi actually did it. And he set up what's called the galleon trade. Um, and what happens is silver comes from here, goes to Mexico, goes to Mexico, and then goes to Manila, and the Chinese really want silver, and they trade stuff for it, and this comes back here, and then it's fed into the triangular trade. Legaspi is the father of globalization. In 1571, when he does the first big exchange with China, our world becomes one. We have true global trade for the first time ever. And this galleon trade, as it's called, across the Pacific con continues virtually without interruption for 200 years. It's a vastly profitable, um, it's, it's just enormously profitable. The reasons are, are kind of complicated, but basically has to do with the fact that China was the world's largest and most sophisticated economy, and, um, they, but it, was not very, it didn't have a very good government. And uh, they had, the Ming Dynasty had screwed up the currency so much so that the Chinese money was valueless. And so the Chinese had been forced to, to, make, you know, to make their economy work were trading bars of silver. And lo and behold, the Spaniards have discovered the world's largest supply of silver. Each one of these boats, the ships that are going over, these galleons, is a ship full of money. Um, the Chinese are desperate for this stuff. And in return, they want to give 
the Europeans silk, which the Europeans are desperate for. Um, this, Europe is known for wool. Wool is, no matter how well you do it, is still scratchy. Silk, like this, is incredibly beautiful. It's in, and the, the, of course, the Europeans are completely fascinated by this. And this exchange across the ocean continues and is just enormously profitable. Now, not only does silver go into China, but also corn and sweet potatoes. These things are passengers on here, and this is how, um, this is where the sweet potato pie comes from. But the, the English, who are now looking at all this, as this vast amount of money is coming into to their, when they look at it, they don't see the sweet potato and the corn, they see this. They see piles of money that they're not getting any of. They're desperate to hook themselves in, into this. Now, along with this comes some certain kind of cartographical confusion. Um, this is this famous map that was made in 1507 that, uh, that you know, virtually every um, European um, elite person saw in many, many pirated editions. And one of the things that you'll notice is it shows America is very skinny. And um, for a long time, I thought that this was just a kind of convention. But they, if it was, they appear not to have known it was a convention because a great number of um, people in, in Europe thought that the Americas were the kind of this long, thin island um, for far longer than you would think possible. One of these people was John Farrar. And uh, those of you who um, know the history of Jamestown know that he was one of the principal backers of the Virginia Company, which was the, which was the group that founded um, uh, Jamestown. And this is a map in 1651 based on his original map. And what it shows here, this is north is this way. This is Chesapeake Bay here. This, this roughly where Jamestown is. And what he wants them to do is to go up the river here and then walk across these little islands and then get to see those, those ships there. <laughs> That's where he wants them to go. This is why Jamestown is here. Jamestown is here to be a way station so that you know, sh English ships can come here and then they can um, go over there to this place called New Albion that he sort of has in mind setting up and get some of that silver from the Chinese and the silk from the Chinese and do the same thing as uh, the, the Spaniards. What he, what he wants to do is to hook Virginia, which is you know, now isolated, into this world system created by the Spaniards. What he wants to do is, to, um, is there's a world party going on of globalization, and he wants to join this party. Now, he's very unhappy when this doesn't happen. And uh, some of the happiness, unhappiness comes out most clearly in his marginalia, where he would um, sit reading books about Virginia and denounce them. And um, this one is a long quote, but it gives you some idea of where it. He says, the westerly sea, that's Pacific, is not, as is too commonly believed, um, when we all abused by the Spanish cards and maps. So it is not so far from Virginia as many thousand miles or hundreds either. Francis Drake was just opposite the back of the James River in Virginia in a country he called New Albion in 37 degrees. And then in 1578, he was just eight weeks away from, from there. To this country of New Albion, it can't be above eight or 10 days journey from the head of James River. <laughs> See, so here he is, he's in 1649. And what these marginal notes are in his letters are saying, stop doing all this stuff with tobacco and everything. Keep your eyes on the ball. Focus on China. That's where we want to go. He says, what a mighty trade of wealth and happiness would be this discovery be to Virginia speedily to the East Indies through the continent of Virginia to this West Sea, as beneficial as the West Indies were to the king of Spain. If the Virginia planters had but the heart and belief to adventure with, um, 
you know, that with 40 people, 30 horses, it would be done. They want nothing to affect it but courage and will. What a pity, alas. <laughs> now, it's very odd that he would feel this because other English people, this is a map from um, 1628. I mean, here's North America. You can see he's got it roughly right. But there's this great cosmographical confusion, and uh, people who want to hook Virginia, want to have a, a chance to uh, join this, simply will not um, re refuse to believe that the Americas are not, you know, 150 miles wide. And he's not alone, by the way. Farrar's not, uh, you know, some sort of isolated nut. Um, this is uh, the, the French in Canada, or uh, many of them are under the same delusion. And this is a map of uh, New Canada in, from Pierre Duval in 1664. And it shows basically the same thing. Here you go, here's Chesapeake Bay, and they just have to walk here, and then there's this strange river here that apparently they could just sail down. I, I don't, this is the St. Lawrence, and this must be Lake Erie. I just have no idea what this is. Um, and the amazing thing is they draw this with such confidence. I mean, look, there's like these details here. Where this is coming from, I have no idea. Um, but again, this is the conception, and the whole purpose is this desire to hook you know, North America and through them, they're, 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 um, the colonial countries, into this elaborate system of, of transoceanic trade um, brought by the, uh, by, by the Spaniards to, to get a piece of that particular action. Now, the irony is that this did occur, but in a way that Farrar was completely unable to recognize, and one that had an enormous impact on the subsequent history of, of, of this country, because they didn't get silk, um, but the way they hooked into the, the rest of the world trade was through tobacco, of course. Um, and um, I, I assume as uh, Virginians, you, 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 have seen, you have seen this. I presently live in the Connecticut Valley, which is probably the northernmost place that tobacco has grown anywhere in, in the world. Um, and uh, this is familiar. Now, this, you, you presumably know something about the story of, of tobacco. It was um, brought, it, you know, the, the kind of tobacco that we grow now is not native to North America. It's actually native to um, South America. It was grown in the West Indies. Um, it was apparently smuggled by John Rolfe. He managed to get somebody to smuggle it to him. And he starts growing it in about 1612, does a few experiments, brings his first little batch of it to um, London in 1616. And these, these numbers, nobody's really sure of them. Um, so take them with a grain of salt. But the general point is that the, the, the exports just absolutely take off. Now, do you remember the, the sugar plantation stuff that I showed you be, beforehand? where there is the, the sugar and it has this tremendously labor-intensive crop that was these very, very heavy um, plants that, that were very difficult to cut. Tobacco is sort of in the same way. Like um, sugar, it's a, it, like sugar cane, it's a heavy um, plant. You use basically the whole plant. It's an enormous amount of, um, of labor. So the question is, if you're in Virginia and you want to take advantage of this explosive demand for um, this wonderfully addictive substance, what do you do how do you get the labor? Now, Indians are not going to provide this for you. Um, this is a map of the areas that were densely settled. Um, this is something I'm working on for the book. It's a, it's a bit of a work in progress. But basically, talking to archaeologists and anthropologists, that there's plenty of people um, to do this in the Americas at the time of, of Columbus. But what happened was Europeans brought along these diseases um, that did not exist over here Inadvertently, of course, they didn't know anything about the germ theory of disease, and there was a massive wave of depopulation between about 1500 and about 1650. And so by the time that our tobacco market is going up in 1650, hardly anybody lives here. 
And so even if you could wanted to coerce the Indians into this work and somehow manage to do it, there's simply not enough of them to, um, to do it. Now, the other solution would be to bring in um, uh, English people as well. But then there's a second problem here with that, in addition to the, to the sort of practicalities of dragging over a whole lot of people. Um, if you'll notice that most of the, this is a map of the known origins of the Jamestown settlers. Most of them are from here, the southwestern portion of, of England. The reason this is important is that these zones here are intensely malarial. There's malaria is rampant um, in, in England at the, at the time. And uh, so that what happens is rather quickly, these people bring over malaria. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about malaria, so I should probably give you a couple of tips about it since you may not have studied it um, recently. Um, there's two main, malaria is a, pla a parasite that goes in the blood, and there's two main species um, in the Americas now. One is, and there, one is Plasmodium vivax, and the other is Plasmodium falciparum. The very first one, vivax, is the one that was in Europe um, and is the one that's most important for our, our story. And the way that you can diagnose them is that they, um, the little parasites hide in cells in your body and then burst out all at once, um, causing these waves of fever. Then they go back into these cells, and so you have these recurrent waves of fever. Every two days for um, Vivax, so there's a sort of three-day cycle of two days of, fe of fever and then one day off, and then every three days for falciparum. And these, whenever you see in ancient medical journals intermittent fever, or intermittent ags, or, the, or that sort of aggies, or that sort of thing, it's almost a sure sign of, of malaria. And the other thing that they can do is that they can both remain undetected in the body for long periods of time. They can hide out in your spleen, and you can sail across the Americas, and then six months later, or even two years later, you can get an attack. Now, the other thing that you need to have, um, uh, in, to have is a host, you know, they like the, the, the the parasite goes into um, mosquitoes to breed, and then, goes, and then the mosquitoes bite you and send it back in there, so there's a very complicated chain. Um, it so happens that the United States has a species, of, the, the only host is this type of mosquito called Anopheles. The United States and the United Kingdom have two virtually identical species. It was just sort of waiting for malaria to come. And um, here is, a, here is a, a diagram of where all the mosquito species are that can host uh, malaria, and pretty much Malaria is everywhere there, there was, everywhere there is a host for it. And as you can see, in the eastern United States, it was basically just waiting for these guys to come. Some Europeans go over with, 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 with malaria, the mosquitoes bite them, um, then they start the chain of transmission. It only takes one person. And in fact, um, uh, this was illustrated in 2002 when a person um, landed in Dulles Airport with uh, developed malaria, and a uh, mosquito bit that person, and two people in Virginia got the disease. Fortunately, we now have the Centers for Disease Control, which stepped in and quickly you know, um, you know, bathed the whole place in DDT or something like that. But it's a very tricky, um, difficult disease. And um, we know um, that it was there by, this, by the 1650s um, that, uh, it, from John Winthrop's medical diary. Um, most of the immigration into, the United, uh, into what is now the United States uh, um, occurred between 1620 and 1640 in what's called the Great Migration. So it's very probably somewhere in the 1630s that, uh, that, that malaria came into this, and it joined the rest of the world in being uh, dangerous. Now, the reason that this is important is that um, it meant that Europeans couldn't go out into the woods very readily because everybody got sick. And there was a long 
um, tradition in the American South called the seasoning, where people would come here and uh, be either and become very very sick for about a year, um, or or you know, often dying, and then only after they, um, they they survived the seasoning would they be you know thought to be full um, fledged colonists, and that was malaria, and this meant that there's an enormous barrier to bringing in workers from from um, England after about the or from Europe after about the 1630s because they would be you would, you would bring them over you'd sponsor them they'd be sick for a year it's very expensive to take care of them um, now there's another fact that I didn't mention here that is now brings the light. West Africans, by a genetic quirk, are basically 100% immune to um, Plasmodium vivax. The mosquitoes can bite them all. And so you had a place where there's a desperate need for labor. You had a place where um, that, and um, people who are aware of, through sugar plantations, of this kind of plantation model who had seen it um, in, in, you know, going on in Europe for centuries. And so they um, imported that model that had been developed for sugar plantations came in, uh, into um, Virginia and then the rest of the southern, uh, southern United States. And again, this entire um, you know, rise of the plantation slavery complex is, in a perverse way, a kind of globalization. It was bringing in, um, it was connecting this part of the country to a system of labor that existed throughout the, Medi uh, throughout, throughout the Mediterranean, in the Caribbean, and in the, in, the, in, the, in the rest of the world. There's some irony here, um, because England, that the English were doing this because the English were um, very self-consciously anti-slavery at the time. And if you read um, seven, 16th century and 17th century English books, they're constantly saying things like, our nation is free, stout, haughty. Um, we cannot in any wise digest be used as villains and slaves in suffering continually. So that there's this very self-conscious conception of the English as people who um, don't have slaves, who aren't slaves. And, um, but Unfortunately, um, here's another example. Um, there's one of the things that's, that's also curious at the time. There's a subgenre of, of English literature, um, slave narratives. There are thousands of English people who have been captured by um, Muslims and used for galley slaves and working on sugar plantations. Um, it, in the, we know of about 10,000 of these um, you know, individual cases. There are probably many more. And this was, you know, the English public was greatly aroused by this and very angry about this, you know, continual raiding of, um, of English ships for slaves. And here is one of the slave narratives um, by a guy named Davies, um, which finishes by saying, what English heart, I say, duly pondering these things, can otherwise choose but falling down his bended knees to give God mortal thanks for preserving him for so long from many miseries and wretched thraldoms. Thraldoms is slavery, um, where, you know, which are in most other nations of the world. So, but the English come over here and they're, as I said, they're desperate to hook into this emerging world system, and one of the uh, and that the rules of that system are, in many cases, plantation slavery. And so, what happens effectively there is that they take over the triangular trade, and that much of the history of um, Virginia and the and the subsequent um, English in English colonies can be thought of as a kind of takeover of this Spanish um, trade in much of the same way as the, um, as the Spanish and the Normans and the, um, and the Crusaders had taken over the model from the, from the Muslims be beforehand. And so now when you take these, um, these uh, uh, when you take courses and they show you these things, the triangular trade, the odd thing is that um, you're, you're, it's being seen as a sort of new um, thing that was, you know, brought to, that was created in the Americas. In fact, it represented an attempt 
um, by the Americas to become, you know, by the people who are moving into the Americas to hook them into the rest of the world and to use these models and to use these ideas and practices that had existed everywhere else in the world. And so much of American history, in a sense, is, is to, should be seen, I would argue, as this attempt to, you know, ride on, to surf on this wave of, of, of globalization, one that continues to the, to the present day. And that's really what I came here to talk about. I know it's sort of been dizzying going back and forth with all, all these things, and I'd be very happy to answer any questions if you had any. Thank you very much for inviting me.